Welcome to the next track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams, and I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. This week, we're very happy to have a special guest, Lewis Shiner, author of the novel Outside the Gates of Eden. Lewis, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So, I need to mention the backstory. My friend Peter Robinson, who was on the show, and I'll have a link in the show notes to the episode where we interviewed Peter, he writes crime fiction. And Peter writes a lot about music. His main character, Inspector Banks, is always listening to different kinds of music. So whenever he goes on a, an author's tour, he's always got booksellers recommending books about music. And he was in Sweden a couple of weeks ago, and a bookseller, I guess it was an English-language bookstore, recommended your novel, Beyond the Gates of Eden, along with another book called Why Dylan Matters. I believe it's by a classicist who's comparing Dylan to Homer, you know, easy stuff like that. <laughs> so Peter sent me an email knowing that I'm a Dylan fan as well, and that's how we are where we are. I read the book. I bought it, what, about 10 days ago? I read it in three days. It, th this book is, what, eight or 900 pages? I couldn't really tell because it was on my Kindle. Yeah, it's almost new, so that, that, that's no small feat. <laughs> yeah, and so I just whipped through it on my Kindle, and it just it really blew me away. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. The reason for this is the Dylan link, and we'll, we'll go through – obviously, we're not going to give spoilers about it, but there's a lot that we can say about the book. It starts at a Bob Dylan concert in 1965. Right. This was the, um, this was the infamous tour with the band. And um, if you've read Levon's Wheel, This Wheel's on Fire, his autobiography, he talks about the Texas shows. And he said this was the only place where people really got it. This was before, you know, this is like, uh, I think Austin was the, the first stop on the tour and Dallas was the second stop. And that's where I saw him and I saw that 65 concert. And um, there wasn't really that history and mystique around the, the, the concerts where everybody was expecting to boo, you know, and they had worked out their boo lines and whatever in advance. This was all new to us. And, you know, we knew the records and we were huge fans. And it was a, it was a truly an amazing concert. Um, a friend of mine once said that that was probably the last time that music could really change somebody's life. And that's essentially what happens in your novel that it does change the lives of two characters or more. But what you're saying here is that there's a bit of an autobiographical element in the novel then. Well, there's huge amounts of, of it laced all the way through. A lot of it is, is sort of encoded. So, uh, you know, I, I uh, messed up my left index finger in a power saw. Uh, the, one of the characters in the book has an accident on, oil, on an oil rig that affects his right hand. So, you know, stuff has moved around, but it's there's a lot of autobiographical uh overlap there. I have to admit that when I got to that scene where the tip of his finger was lopped off, I knew he was who he was going to meet a few years later. <laughs> Jerry Garcia, of course. Exactly. <laughs> he, he has a, basically it was a Jerry finger on the opposite hand and they met in San Francisco. Um, I think it's on Jerry's right, it's on Jerry's right hand also. Um, and, and That's right. You're yeah, right. So it, it, it's strumming hand, not his fretting hand. Right. So, um, my my accident was pretty damaging to my guitar playing, but uh, yeah. But the uh, the accident in the book was didn't keep him from it. And Jerry uh, Jerry appears in the book, and uh, they he he refers to them as the brothers of the um, 
missing finger or something like that. Mangled finger. Mangled finger. So there are two characters, the two main characters in the book. One is Jeff Cole and the other is Alex Montoya. Jeff Cole goes by the name Cole. And he wasn't even into music at all at the time until Alex takes him to this concert. And it was a revelation for him. Was that was that you, that you didn't know much about music back then? Um, largely. It wasn't that he wasn't into music. He's just that he was into, you know, like uh, movie themes and, and Italian love songs and stuff like that. And he wasn't into rock right. music. Right, so he wasn't into music, and, uh, real music. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we could say that. So um, he has a few weeks before the Dylan concert where Alex is turning him on to Dylan and the animals and the hollies and all this stuff. So he's, he's not going into the concert completely cold. And yeah, that's that's largely autobiographical. I, I started getting into... Uh, um, into rock through Dylan. What kind of music had you been listening to prior to your Dylan revelation? Yeah, I didn't have my own record player or anything, so I was I would listen to the radio and I'd listen to you know kind of easy listening stuff. There would um, there was some of the folk music, like uh, uh, you know walk right in and sit right down, you know stuff sure. like that that was uh, that was being played on more conventional stations and not on the rock stations. So I was kind of into that kind of, but was really sort of unfocused. And then listening to Dylan that my friend turned me on to Jimmy Savage, great name, Jimmy Savage. Right. And he, he was, uh, he, he did his best to live up to it in high school. Um, <laughs> so he, he turned me on to, uh, to alcohol, cigarettes and rock and roll. So he was quite a formative influence. Oh, I think we all had a friend like that. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a heck of a start, though, to discover rock music through Bob Dylan, especially at the time. Yeah, well, Bob Dylan led me to Simon and Garfunkel, and then on. Then I was listening to rock radio, so I got into the whole the whole Megillah. So, you trace this character, well, these two characters and their families, and you trace them through a long period of time, and. Unfortunately, in the beginning of the book, uh, the table of contents shows the years as they pass, and it would have almost been interesting to not know that it essentially covers about, what, 1965 to 2016, so about 50 years. Yeah. It starts as a story about a musician, and it ends up being a story about our entire generation. We're a few years younger than you. Yeah. So in 1965, I was in... First grade, so I didn't really go to concerts yet. But as I read through this, it's like I was saying to Doug yesterday: these all these events that we've gone through in our life in these fifty years, all these huge events, and your characters aren't present at all of them, but they certainly participate in a lot of them. Yeah, I wasn't trying for the Zelig or Forrest Gump thing. I was. Uh, I did want him at a few key events, um, and actually, well, the two characters they. Between them, they hit a lot of the high points. I knew I wanted to hit the Summer of Love in San Francisco, had to have Woodstock in there, had to have, have some political protests and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I, I wasn't that clear on what I was going to do and what I was not going to do when I started the book. Um, I just had this sort of vague idea of where I wanted it to go. And I pretty much just you know, made it up as I went along. As authors do. <laughs> well, some of them have more detailed outlines. In oh, fact, okay. I would outline in great detail. But uh, with this one, I really trusted myself and just kind of let it go. So you've written a lot of different types of fiction. You were initially a science fiction author, is that correct? Well, 
the first book that I managed to get published happened to be science fiction. And uh, as as is the way with critics and uh, and and scholars and stuff, that sort of stuck. Even though that was the only real hard science fiction novel I ever wrote. Okay, I wrote some science fiction short stories and so forth. Um, but I've I've never been comfortable being pigeonholed in any particular genre. And so the the early books, there's some uh, there's uh, kind of magic realism or an element of fantasy. There's uh, a novel about a guy who uh, ends up as a caretaker of 23 cats, something Doug can probably relate to. Place is crawling with him. Hey, I got two cats as well, so yeah. <laughs> okay. And I've written some suspense novels. There's a novel called Black and White that deals with uh, uh, the uh, um, racial issues in, in North Carolina. So, yeah, kind of all over the map. What, what I really appreciated about this novel is the that there's an attention to detail without being sort of joicy and obsessive. There's an attention to detail that really uh, sets the scene in each different period. And, you know, understanding that I lived through some of this, I didn't go to the Summer of Love in San Francisco, but I was in high school kind of worried about the draft coming along. You know, so this, these are experiences that, that, well, both Doug and I had. And I really felt that Two things. One is you're writing about your own experience, but also you've researched a bunch of true events, in particular, one that happened at a Led Zeppelin concert with Bill Graham. Yeah. yeah. Therefore, though, it turns out after I'd written it, uh, one of uh, one of my fans had been at that very concert. So they had uh, they had verified a lot of that. And um, before I wrote it, another friend of mine had had been there and told me a little bit about it. He had seen the. Um, the, the road crew beating up a guy on on one of the exits there um, but you know that particular uh, by the by the late 70s that kind of stuff was really getting well documented and with a band like Led Zeppelin they've got a website that has actual uh, film you know like home movies that were shot at the concert so you can see the the crowd there's uh, extensive recordings of, of the songs they played then there's uh, reportage on the actual incident that I go into in detail, which is is known as the Oakland incident. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I I do a lot of research. In fact, I've I've claimed a time or two that um, the reason I write is not to create books, but to get to do all have an excuse to do all that research. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need an excuse to read a lot of books. You never do. Yeah. But it's good to be able to get paid for it. Yeah. That certainly helps. Yeah. Your depiction of Bill Graham fits with everything that I've ever read or heard or even seen when you see interviews with him as this tough guy and bullying people. Well, I was surprised. I, I, I went into the book with a very negative attitude towards Graham and thought that he was kind of a jerk. And yet, when I started writing him, he just sort of came to life on the page for me. And, he, and there was this sort of charming side of him that I had not anticipated that just came out. And so that was a, that was a big surprise to me. I really enjoyed writing the Graham sections. It's true that some of the anecdotes about Bill Graham do suggest that, you know, he said very nice things about some of his musicians or just the idea that after the last Waltz concert, he gave 3000 people breakfast, yeah. you know, the little things like that, that you'd expect he was such a cheapskate yet. He would still <laughs> do something like that. Yeah. He did have a generous side and I, I think a lot of times he was just testing people to see what he could get away with. Yeah. 
Well, that's what happens when Cole meets Bill Graham initially, and then again a few years later, is you kind of get the feeling that Graham is being hostile to see how Cole's going to react. Exactly. And whether Cole's going to be able to stand up to him or if he's just going to wimp out and walk away. Exactly. Exactly. So were you at the Summer of Love? No, I was not. Um, I was uh, I was I was 16, so I was in Dallas, and very skeptical about all that stuff about hippies and all that. Well, yeah, but uh, and I wasn't at Woodstock either, but I was at the Texas Pop Festival two weeks later. I don't know that one. So who was uh, there? Um, it, it had well headliners included Zeppelin and uh, Joplin, um, Spirit. I forget who all else was there, but Santana was there. And a number of the uh, number of the acts from Woodstock, but it was you know it was a very different flavor of an event because it was a lot of people were just day tripping there because it was right outside Dallas. See, and you know, I was one of one of them, and so I'd drive up there, park my car, go see the show, leave early if I didn't want to see the headlining act, get home and have a good night's sleep in my own bed. So that was a very different vibe from Woodstock, where everybody was camping out. Yeah, the Woodstock section feels realistic. Again, based on what we've seen in the movies and read about it, the the chaos that was there, all the issues with you know electricity and and cleanliness, to to say the least. Yeah, <laughs> to say the least. Um, again, I just did extensive research on that, and uh, uh, to the point that I had to call a couple of people to get details exactly right. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that everything's exactly right, but I did work really hard to try. And well, it's fiction. Stuff. It doesn't have to be exactly right. Yeah, it does if I can do it. If I can manage it, it does okay. have to be exactly right. <laughs> yeah. When Woodstock happened, I was 10 years old. And I remember going back to school in September after that. And one, I was in a very small private school. And one of the teachers came back with like a John Lennon beard and was wearing a Nehru jacket. <laughs> but we didn't hear about Woodstock, even though it wasn't, it, that might have made the evening news in New York. I don't know. It probably did. But I don't remember at the time hearing much about it. It was, when did the record come out? Was it two years later? Uh, I think it was a year later, along with the movie. So I think the movie came out in 1970. And I remember uh, some friends of mine said, we're going to go see this movie Woodstock. I said, what's Woodstock? So we, we did not really hear about it in Texas either, even though I was sort of part of that festival circuit in that I'd gone to the, the Texas Pop Festival that summer. Still, you know, I must have heard something about Woodstock, but it didn't really stick. And that's it's the thing that, as, as I kind of talk about in the book, it's a phenomenon that just grew and grew and grew. After the event, um, the science fiction writer Bill Gibson, William Gibson, who wrote Neuromancer, uh, uh, he's one of my friends who was at Woodstock. And he was the one who told me about all the people leaving and saying, man, this was terrible. I had the worst time. I've been miserable and cold and suffering this whole weekend. I wish I hadn't come. And then those same people, you know, he, he met him you know, talking about the transcendent experience they'd had. And so it was the... Really, the impact of Woodstock was in retrospect for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know he was there. It's kind of interesting because we interviewed someone last year who wrote a book about the Grateful Dead's May 8, 1977 concert at Cornell University, which is widely considered to be one of the best Grateful Dead concerts. And a lot of the contemporaneous 
opinions of the concert were like, oh, the sound wasn't very good. That wasn't such a great show. And yet we listen to it now on the recordings, the remastered recordings and all that. And it is truly miraculous. And there's such a difference between what you experience and what the music really is. Yeah, well, well, that's true, not just of music, but of everything. You know, you're, you're, you only have your memories of an event. You, you, you don't have, there is no, you know, physical, actual reincarnation of the event that you can go check. So uh, it's all a question of memory. Like, for instance, Country Joe McDonald, for years, I think he's finally straightened up on this, but for years he swore that he played Friday night at Woodstock and was very argumentative about it. And yet there's, there's plenty of photographic and other evidence to indicate that he was actually playing on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's that old cliche you hear about if you, if, you know, if you, you remember the sixties, you weren't there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the one thing that I really felt throughout the entire novel is your, your love of music. And it's not all about music. Uh, it's what is it about halfway you get to Woodstock and then it kind of starts taking more space between over the time as the characters evolve and music is the thread, but then you get a lot more into the family and the relationships and all that. But all throughout is, is a sincere love of music. It's, it's as if this is a novel about music. Yeah, I think so. It's, I, I, I wanted to write something really ambitious that, that talked about the generation, but you need a focal point. To, to, to anchor a big book like that. And music is the focal point that, that the book is built around. And yeah, it's, it's um, I, I, from the very first, had an idea of this as, as kind of a reverse Fibonacci series. In other words, um, each section is, is kind of half the size of the one before it. Half the previous, yeah. Um, so the book is from 1965 to 1969. And then... Uh, each year, and I start skipping years, and I skip bigger chunks of years as I go. This is a little bit smaller. But I also felt that that was a, a reflection of the way that our memories work and, and the way that our lives go. So much in your teenage years is the first time you do something, your first cigarette, your first love affair, whatever. And then, you know, by the time it's your millionth cigarette and your, you know, hundredth love affair, um, it's not as intense. Usually, anyway. I was wondering, again, this is a podcast about music, but I'm a, a real book guy. So when I read a novel, I'm often thinking, who's influenced this author? And one author I really like who's written several novels like this that span the entire life of a character is William Boyd. Is he any kind of influence on you? I've read Boyd, and I, I enjoy his work a lot. I wouldn't list him as the major influence. Um, I would say that one of the, the uh, arcs of my career has been shedding influences. So with each book I write, I try and, and be a little less influenced by anybody else. So at this point, I would, I would be hard-pressed to say who's, who's having a big influence on me. Tolstoy, I guess. You know, I was, I was, when I came up with this novel, I just finished Anna Karenina. I said, man, I'd, I'd like to write something big like that. And in which decade did you start reading it? <laughs> well, it is uh, it is a hefty book, but it you know it also can can get you uh, propelled through it pretty quickly. Um, but I you know I, I was asking myself what would Tolstoy write about if if Tolstoy were 
we're looking for a, a, a theme right now. And it struck me that, you know, the, the death of 60s idealism and the rise of this greed culture that we're living in would, would be a Tolstoyan subject. So I would, I would list Tolstoy as, a, as an influence of Dickens, maybe. But also, I don't know, the stuff I, I mostly read these days is like, uh, you know, the literary bestsellers like Ann Patchett. Uh, there's a woman named Sarah Waters, who's a British historical novelist, who's a big influence. Stuff like that. So as I was reading it, my thought was, and, and I'm not a Tolstoy fan, but I read a lot of French literature, and my thought was Balzac, Zola, that type of realist, gritty, down-to-earth stuff. And it even made me think of Tom Wolfe, if you remember that essay that he wrote, was it called The Billion-Footed Beast in Harper's, defending the idea of the great social novel, and this was shortly before Bonfire of the Vanities. And it had that feel, that sort of big-picture almost HBO series feel of taking the time to look at something in depth. From your lips to God's ears, they say. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not suggesting that HBO option your book, or that would be interesting, mm -hmm. but you have the problem of the characters who age over time. Right, and uh, uh, certainly Balzac is, is a writer I very much admire. And I even pulled a little bit of a Balzacian trick in that I pulled in characters from some of my other novels. Ah, Okay. Uh, so Skip Shaw is in Say Goodbye. Okay. Uh, there's, there's a guy named Eddie Yates at the Battle of the Bands who's in my novel Deserted Cities of the Heart. Little little nods and winks there that I hope would, would not distract anybody who was, uh, who was familiar with them. But it, it would evoke that kind of Balzacian sense that, you know, the, the work is, is, is a kind of unified thing in itself. So when I got to the end of the novel, I have to admit, I wasn't sure if it was optimistic or pessimistic. And we're not going to say anything about what happens, but, you know, there was this mixed feeling about whether what was going to happen was going to be positive or not. There was, um, there's been a mixed reaction to the ending. One of the reviews said that it was pure Pollyanna, the last section, uh, whereas other people like, for instance, George Martin, who blurred the book, uh, was saying that, that he was disappointed that it was so dark. And uh, uh, I, what I felt was it was the most optimistic ending I could come up with that I felt was realistic and believable. Because we're living in tough times. We are indeed. We're quite possibly living in the end days. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far, but... <laughs> Says our from, man from in the UK. I, well, I was going to say, from, wh from where I sit, the British Parliament today is about to decide whether we're going to go totally lunatic crazy or maybe be reined in a little bit. And we're recording this on the 22nd, so I'm not going to make a message in the bottle suggesting what I think is going to happen. But when people hear this in two weeks, you'll know that we've either, it's either been a disaster or it hasn't. But yeah, it's, you know, I remember in the 1980s, we kind of felt that as well. I remember going on anti-nuclear marches in New York. Reagan was president. The national debt was soaring. Obviously, this seems worse, but... Well, Reagan was definitely the beginning of the end. Reagan was the, the first one to come along and just make shit up, you know? It would just be off the top of his head, and uh, when people would call him on it, he'd just wave his hands and say, oh go away you know <laughs> and uh and he was he was really the the first politician to come along and say you know oh forget about all these problems that we've got uh, we'll just you know we don't exist and that attitude led directly to donald trump yeah 
That that whole morning and, in America yeah, thing. You know, and Boris Johnson and, and everything. Yeah. Okay, we don't want to get into too much politics. This is a podcast about music. What about you as a musician? You've obviously played music. Have you done any recordings? Have you played in clubs like your characters? Yeah, um, I, I after the Dylan concert, I uh, I got a guitar for Christmas and was working on that. Had the power saw accident uh, and was not really able to play right-handed guitar anymore. So I shifted to drums, um, had a high school garage band with friends, um, played uh, throughout college and afterwards. Um, there was a period in the 70s from about mm, 1973 to 74 where I was actually a self-supporting musician or as I like to say, a drummer, not real musician. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, I, we, we had a, we were the house band at this nasty little bar in Dallas and we got $60 a week, which was just enough for me to live on in 1974. And so, uh, I, I actually had the experience of being a full-time self-supporting musician and that kind of tapered off over the years. I was in a band in Austin in around 1980 and, um, we were, uh, it was a band called the dinosaurs and we were uh playing the same 60s music that we played in the first band i was ever in so it's kind of a, a nice circular uh conclusion there and i found that it was getting tougher and tougher to stay up till 3 a.m and uh you know i was first i was drinking beer all night and that really was starting to mess me up and then i was drinking coke there was too much caffeine and then i was just drinking water and i was still getting worn out with the voice. and i you know i've been going back and forth kind of my my whole life up till then between the idea of writing and the idea of being a musician they were both kind of tied in my head as to which one i wanted to do and that kind of persuaded me that i'd probably be uh be better off at least physically as a writer yeah, I, I've never played music. I, I've never been good enough at music to play professionally. I, I did, you know, gig in a garage band for a while. But it is grueling. And when you see one of my favorite movies about music is Almost Famous. And you see what it's like, the, the musicians on the tour. And anytime you read memoirs of a musician, it, it's terrible. It's kind of funny. You said that you were in the 80s, you were playing the same 60s music you played in your first band. There's what's that band that still does that? The Rolling Stones. They still play the same '60s music, don't they? <laughs> yeah, 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 They're still hanging on. They've made a career out uh, of it. Yeah, they they did indeed. Lewis, I want to thank you very much. Uh, I want to really suggest to anyone who likes this period of music and anyone who's around our age that this novel really depicts the generation that we grew up with. It's called Outside the Gates of Eden. There'll be links in the show notes. And Lewis Shiner, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. Time now to present our next tracks. Kirk? Uh, a lot of times my next track pick is something I have been listening to recently. And this time it's something I'm going to listen to again soon. Just before we started recording the show, my son messaged me. He said to me, I'm seeing Fontaine's DC and Murder Capital in a few weeks, in the same week, different concerts. And Fontaine's DC is a band he turned me on to a couple months ago. They're a, 
Uh, Wikipedia describes them as a post-punk rock band from Dublin, Ireland. So let's get the name out of the way because it's kind of strange. Apparently, the name comes from the character in The Godfather, Johnny Fontaine, a singer and movie star portrayed by Al Martino. And the DC stands for Dublin City. These guys are Dubliners. They've got one album out, which is called Dogrel, D-O-G-R-E-L. And my son, he sends me links sometimes to Apple Music for things he likes. And I put this on. It's like, dude, Gang of Four. Dude, The Clash. Dude, Television. Dude, The Pogues. And it's like, how can you be a punk band today without having all those obvious references? You can't rewrite punk. But this band has an extraordinary energy. And it's funny because I was just playing a little bit of it before the show over my MacBook Pro, and Doug was hearing it through the microphone of my MacBook Pro, and he said something like, you can actually understand the words they're saying that they recorded the vocals in a soundproof booth, unlike, you know, any Ramones or most Clash songs. There, there is a certain level of, it's almost as if they've taken the rawness of punk rock of the 70s and 80s and actually made it more precise, more concise, more... Not less punk, not less angry, but it sounds better. It sounds more refined in a way. So they're an Irish band, and I'll put a link in the show notes for their album. Look them up on YouTube. I'll find a YouTube thing. One of these radio show concerts that they did that my son sent me a link to. The other one is Murder Capital. I think they're also a Dublin punk band. I haven't listened to them yet. So check out Fontaine's DC. Doug, what have you got? I do a lot of experiments with Apple scripts on the tracks in my music library. Um, and that's to make sure that when I release Apple scripts, uh, there's no potential for damage to users' libraries. So I damage my own. And essentially, I have maybe a dozen or so quarantinable albums that I use for various experiments. And what I would do is, you know, mess around with the artwork or change the data or re-encode them or do all kinds of things to them. And I don't want to disturb any of my regular collections, so I have this quarantine collection. It just happens to be a bunch of albums that I've assembled over the years. They aren't my particular favorite albums or anything like that. They just happen to work their way into this quarantine list. And one of those albums is by a band called Mother's Finest. I don't even know why I have the album. It seems like it might be the sort of thing I picked up for a dollar at a CD swap or something. But anyway... Mother's Finest was a band from the 1970s, and this album is called Another Mother Further, so it leads me to believe it's their second or third album. I have it, um, I've kept it and listened to it over the years because it's kind of interesting. It's got a, it's got a, what they do is a sort of a rock, funk, disco sort of sound. It's from the late 70s. This album is from 1977. But the thing that troubles me about the band is that one of their features was that they were integrated. Now, I have nothing against bands that are integrated, you know, white people playing with black people. I have no problem with that. That makes perfect sense to me. But they seem to make it a, a feature of the band such that some of the songs were rock-oriented and some of them are disco, jazz, funk-oriented. And they seem to like to make a point that, look, we're, we're white and we're black and we're playing this kind of music. It's the sort of attitude that seems kind of stayed these days, and if not kind of making me feel squirmy just talking about it. But this was a band that wasn't unlike other bands at the time, like Rufus, or even Sly and the Family Stone, even Frank Zappa. These are all integrated bands. But my point is, 
I think that it was completely unnecessary to make this a feature of the band. Mother's Finest is quite a solid outfit. The, the women in particular, the women singers in particular, are just awesome. The musicianship is about hotel band caliber, but the songs are quite good, good arrangements and things like that. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. It's just something that isn't one of my favorites, but it's something that's always around. It's Mother's Finest, Another Mother Further. This was episode number 163 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, well, spread the word among your family and friends. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.